But today, it's Palm Sunday, right? Uh, when I was growing up, we didn't celebrate Palm Sunday much, but I knew it existed. I like to, to celebrate things that are in Scripture. And so we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. It's the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey uh, while people threw their clothing and palm fronds on the ground in front of him, which was a very traditional thing uh, for the people to do. The event is usually referred to as the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem because crowds proclaim Jesus as their king. But it doesn't, didn't resemble much the triumphal entry of other kings because they had won a big victory and they would come in on their big horses with all their armies trailing behind them. Uh, that didn't, not what Jesus did. In fact, since the crowds later in the week, three or four days later, began to cry out, crucify him, uh, we might wonder what kind of a triumph it really was. Nevertheless, <clears throat> Palm Sunday was the first of eight eventful days <clears throat> that included things like the cleansing of the temple where Jesus went in and, and drove the money changers out and said, this is not what the house of God is supposed to be about. It included the Last Supper, the arrest and betrayal of Christ, the crucifixion and the resurrection, all taking place over the next seven days after this particular day. Uh, Palm Sunday is important enough to have been mentioned in each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, the gospels are eyewitness accounts of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each one of them found it uh, important to include this particular event. So as we get, we're going to be, be reading in, in Matthew, but uh, before the text starts, Jesus is in the city of Jericho. In the city of Jericho, he restores the sight of a man by the name of Bartimaeus. Uh, in Jericho, a guy is saved, a little rich guy called Zacchaeus is saved. And then Jesus begins his ascent up the mountain towards Jerusalem. We have a map. I don't know how well you can see it, but can you see the big red arrow on the right-hand side of the map? You see the village of Bethany, and then you see the village of Bethphage, which is on the kind of the crest of the Mount of Olives, coming down past the Garden of Gethsemane, going to the left, and going to the temple grounds. Well, this is the path that Jesus took. He's coming up from Jericho. It's Friday afternoon. Friday night at six, the Sabbath day starts. And so he stops in the village of Bethany on Friday night. Uh, that's where his friends live, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, this guy that he raised from the dead. They live in that village called Bethany. He stops there and he spends the Sabbath day with them. And Martha prepares a meal for him. Uh, and, and the crowds come in and everybody wants to see Lazarus, this guy that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And the indication is that a lot of people are believing in Jesus because they have seen the resurrected Lazarus. And then Sunday morning comes and Jesus will leave Bethany, begin his ascent over the Mount of Olives, past the village of Bethphage, which we're going to read about where he picks up this donkey that he's going to ride on, and then uh, past the Garden of Gethsemane and into the Temple Mount. So Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1, we're going to read Matthew's account of what happened. Verse 1 starts, now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, verse 2, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, that would probably be Bethphage, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt 
with her. So this would be mother and child here, right? Loose them and bring them to me. Now, if you read Mark and Luke's account of this, they only mention the colt upon which Jesus rode. They don't mention the mother that was there. Uh, but both of the animals evidently accompanied Jesus when he went into the city. And by the way, this colt upon which Jesus rode is no baby. You know, it's not, oh, that poor little baby uh, donkey having to carry this full-grown man. No, this is not a baby. This is a full-grown animal who is simply unbroken and had never before been ridden. And this is the kind of an animal that was needed for a sacred mission. If this animal had ever been worked before, carried loads before, he would not uh, qualify for a sacred mission such as this was. Verse 3, Jesus says, uh, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. Evidently the owner of the donkeys was either a disciple, a follower of Jesus, or perhaps just a person that uh, was willing to help a well-known rabbi like Jesus. And so when the command was given, the animals were given. Verse four, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, verse five, a quotation from Zechariah chapter nine and verse nine, verse five, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah spoke to the nation about the coming of their king in this gentle manner. Not the, not the coming of a conqueror, but the coming of a man of peace. This was not the normal manner in which kings arrived because they usually came in with sword raised high and with troops as conquerors. Verse six, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. Uh, give you a little English lesson here. You know, every pronoun like them has an antecedent. So the them uh, at the end laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. The second on them is their, their clothes. You know, they laid their clothes on the donkey and he didn't sit on both, but he sat on the clothes that were on the donkey's back. Although it is possible that Jesus might've ridden both animals, one for a while and then the colt as he entered the gates of the city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Verse eight, by the way, this is the only account in scripture, the only time where it's ever said that Jesus rode on an animal. He walked everywhere else in his life. So this is a significant event. And obviously he did it for a purpose and that purpose was to fulfill prophecy. Verse eight says, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This would have started outside of the city walls. Remember, uh, how that Bethphage is up on top of the Mount of Olives, about 200 feet above the Temple Mount, by the way. So you're looking down at the Temple Mount. This would have all started, these pilgrims are headed for Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And the roads are full of them. And so this, they, they recognized who Jesus was and they began to call out to him and lay their clothes in front of him and put palm fronds in front of them. By the way, John's gospel mentioned that the tree branches are palm from wherever these pilgrims came, a lot of the commentators say they were mainly from Galilee. They knew about Jesus, but their shouts, what we're going to read in verse nine, made no secret of their belief that Jesus was the long awaited Messiah now coming to, to set up his, his rule and reign in Israel's capital. Verse nine, then the multitudes who went before 
and those who followed. So they were all around him, in front of him, behind him. They were saying this, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. I spoke a little bit about this word Hosanna or Hosanna in our Christmas Eve service this past year. It's, the phrase is used only one time in the entire Old Testament. In Psalm 118, verse 25, where it's translated in the New King James Version, save now, I pray. And the New International Version, it's translated save us. And it's, it's connected with Jehovah or Yahweh. Save us now, God. Save us now, Jehovah. In fact, this, uh, all, uh, this whole song that they were singing, this thing they were chanting, is taken from Psalms 118, verses 25, verse and 26, a hymn which belonged to the great hallelujah chant uh, that was made at the end of the Passover meal by Jewish people and at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. People were accustomed to applying this particular song and this particular chant to Messiah. And when they saw Jesus, they began chanting out this particular song. The six times that the word Hosanna is used in the New Testament, remember once in the Old Testament, and it's quoted in the New Testament, it's used six times in the New Testament, and each one is around this particular event, the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. They, at the end of verse nine, they said, Hosanna in the highest. And by saying in the highest, the crowd was invoking heaven's blessings on them, the salvation that Messiah was bringing. To paraphrase it, what they said, I might say this, save us, O Messiah, who comes to fulfill God's mission, who comes in name, the name of the Lord. Save us, we beg you, as you take your rightful throne and extend heaven's salvation to us. So they were proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah that had been promised in the Old Testament. Verse 10, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? You know, the crowds outside knew who it was, but when he entered the city, people didn't know who he was. Although Jesus was being sought by the Jewish leaders and they had sought him for a while before this, and although they would get their way and crucify him at the end of the week, Jesus usually avoided going into the city of Jerusalem itself. In fact, this is the only time that Matthew records that Jesus entered city of Jerusalem proper. The crowds or the pilgrims coming in from outside were more familiar with Jesus. And so uh, as the procession broke over this hill that was 200 feet above the Temple Mount, began to descend and come into the city through that gate that we know as the Eastern Gate, there was a great commotion and it stirred everybody up and they said, who is this guy that's coming through the gate? Verse 11, so the multitudes, all those people that accompanied, accompanied him through the Eastern Gate into the city, the multitudes said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Although the crowd could not understand everything about the coming Messiah, they recognized Jesus as the prophet predicted in the Old Testament by Moses himself. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, by the way, is where we find that, where Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst. People understood this would be the Messiah. From your brethren, him you shall hear or him you must hear. When this guy comes on the scene, you must listen to what he says. So that's the account, Matthew's account of what happened. And I want to return to a question 
that should come to our minds that we're going to talk about for a few minutes this morning. That's this. Why did the crowds go from Hosanna to the son of David? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Why did they go from that to crucify him, crucify him? Now, I understand there was a bunch of people there. And everybody who said Hosanna might not have said crucify him. And everybody who said crucify him might never have said Hosanna. But there was a big change that took place in the city of Jerusalem from Palm Sunday until the betrayal and the illegal trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why did that happen? What caused it to happen? Well, let's investigate that to start with by looking at the political situation in Israel and the two processions Jesus, the procession of Jesus coming into Jerusalem was not the only thing going on in the city that particular day. But as far as the, the history of Israel is concerned, the history of Israel was a history of invasions and dominations by foreign power and captivities because they never would do what they were supposed to do. They kept worshiping idol gods and God allowed a lot of things to happen to them. From 700 years before the time of Christ, Israel had been divided. The northern kingdoms called, uh, called Israel was taken away by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer called Judah or Judea, from which we get our word Jews. We call the Israelite people today or Hebrew people Jews. They were taken captive by the Babylonians sometime later. Now they were allowed to come back and they existed in various forms, but the final prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, spoke 400 years before Jesus came on the scene. So 400 years of silence and, and battle going on and all kinds of things. About 80 years before the day of Jesus' triumphal entry, the Romans had occupied this land by defeating the Jews and deposing their king. From that time, the Jews talked about rebellion and gaining their independence back again. But the last major uprising before this time had been just after the death of King Herod the Great in about 4 BC, right around the time when Jesus was a baby. He might have you know, been in Egypt at this time or he might have been in the Holy Land. It's hard to tell. But before that rebellion was over with, by the way, it started in the city of Sepphoris, which is only about five miles from Jesus' boyhood town of Nazareth. Before it was over, that city was destroyed. The town of Emmaus had been destroyed by the Roman army. And after putting down the rebellion there, the Romans marched on Jerusalem, put down any rebellion there, and crucified over 2,000 Jews that were suspected of being part of that particular rebellion. The Romans made their intolerance of rebellion crystal clear. You don't mess with the Romans. If you do, you're gonna be in big trouble. And on special days, the Roman leaders often made their presence known, and this was a special day. In their book, a book called, I'll just show you the cover of the book, the book called The Last Week by Marcus Borg and John Croissant, they record that Jesus' procession into Jerusalem was not the only procession into the city that day. In the year 30 AD, probably about this year, Roman historians record that the governor of Judea, a guy you've heard of before by the name of Pontius Pilate, led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into the city of Jerusalem. Now I'm gonna show you that map again that we looked at earlier. Remember the red arrow over here points to the route that Jesus took. All the way to the left side, you see the blue arrow? Uh, it's pointing to a road that comes from Emmaus 
and Joppa, entering the western side of the city. That's where Pontius Pilate entered the city on the same day. Jesus is coming in from the east. Pontius Pilate is coming in from the west, uh, leading Roman soldiers on horseback and on foot. You can imagine what this procession was like because they all they were spit and polished. You know, they were ready to go. Each soldier was clad in leather armor that they polished up to a high gloss. On each soldier's head, they were hammered helmets that gleamed in the bright sunlight. At their sides, in their scabbards, were swords of the best steel that were available. Uh, in their hand, each would carry a spear, or if he happened to be an archer, would have a bow with a sling of arrows on his back. Drummers beat out the cadence uh, because this was no ordinary entrance into the city. Pilate, as governor of the region, which not only included Judea, but also Samaria and Idumea, they, uh, he knew they was standard practice for the Roman uh, governor of a foreign territory to be in its capital for religious celebrations. And this was the beginning of the Passover. This strange religious observance that the Romans allowed the Jews to continue. By the way, the Romans had to be aware that this celebration called Passover was a festival celebrating the liberation of the Israelite nation from another foreign power, which was Egypt. I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not, but on this occasion, Pilate had traveled with a contingent of Romans, Rome's finest soldiers. He left his preferred headquarters. We could call it Caesarea by the sea. You know, he, was, he, he lived on the Mediterranean where the cool breeze blowed, where the, the, he could open his window and look out over the, uh, the ocean uh, in the morning. And he ascended the mountain to that stuffy, crowded, provincial capital of Israel that was called Jerusalem. Now, the temple, and you can see the temple on this map, right? Big word temple, right there kind of in the middle. That's where Jesus was headed. And, 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 and all of the activities of Passover would take care, would take place right there. Just above the temple, there's another arrow, by the way. The green arrow, you see that? It's pointing to Anton, Antonio's Fortress. Antonio's Fortress was a Roman garrison built adjacent to the temple compound that would serve as a good vantage point from which to keep an eye on the Jews. And so that's where Pilate would have gone. Pilate's entry into Jerusalem was meant to send a message to the Jews that those who might be thinking about rebellion, those who might be plotting against the Roman Empire should remember what happened the last time. 2,000 uh, citizens of the city of Jerusalem crucified, not just killed, not just put in jail, but crucified for their uprising. The two processions, one coming from the east, the other coming from the west, could not be more different in the messages that they conveyed. Pilate, leading the Roman centurions, asserts the power and might of the empire of Rome, which crushes all who oppose it. And sometimes we get the idea today that, that political power and military power is the greatest power on the planet. But that's what the Romans wanted people to know. Jesus, riding on a donkey, embodies the peace and tranquility that God brings into the hearts of all those who follow him. Which king would the Jews choose that week? Which one would we choose? 
That's a good question. That's what we're going to talk about for just a few minutes. The question, what kind of king were the Jews looking for? They, pro they said, Hosanna. They proclaimed Jesus, Messiah, King of the Jews. Meanwhile, Pilate came in from the other side. Jesus, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, reminded any Jew that knew his Bible, the Old Testament, of the prophecy of Zechariah. Now, I, uh, we read what Matthew said, but let's look at the prophecy itself. Zechariah chapter 9, just two verses, 9 and 10. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 reads like this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, God says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will, be, he will proclaim peace to the nations. When Messiah comes, uh, peace is going to follow. No implements of war. Implements of war will be turned into implements of peace. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, if you had that in mind, what would you think? What kind of king would you be looking for to come on the scene? Like some other Old Testament prophecies, this one in Zechariah blends two events into one perspective, events that the New Testament divides into two distinct advents or comings of Christ. The first coming of Christ, which is in the past, the return of Christ, which is in the future, and the church age, which is us in between those two things. In his first advent, Jesus rode in on a donkey, presented himself to the nation Israel, but they rejected this peaceful king who came to, to do a work in their hearts. His universal rule that's described here in verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nation. His rule will extend it from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This universal rule will be established when Jesus comes again. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11 and uh, verses that follow. King of kings, Lord of lords, great white horse coming in to take control of the earth itself. That's the king that the Jews wanted. The Jews wanted, forgive me here for just a minute, the Jews wanted Messiah to kick some Roman butt. Now that's, that's what they were looking for. They didn't care about anything else. They wanted Messiah to come in and show those Romans who was boss. They thought Jesus could do something better for them. After all this, one from God who calmed the storm, fed the thousands, 5,000 and 4,000, healed the sick, raised the dead should have no trouble defeating the Roman invader. And when he didn't meet their expectations, when he didn't do what they thought he should do, they rejected him. Now, probably a lot of the common people thought they were on Jesus' side this particular day. But they sided with Jesus for the same reason the Pharisees and others sided with Rome. They thought Jesus could do for them 
what, the, what Rome had done for the leaders of their country, make their lives better, deliver them from this oppressive system, uh, this taxation under which they lived and worked and turn the tables on the Romans. That's why the crowd turns, to, uh, turns away from Jesus by the end of the week. He never defeated the Romans, not this time. He never dissolved the unfair tax system. He never put common people in charge of the government and he didn't say he was going to do that. So the real question for us today is this. If I had been in Jerusalem that day, if I had seen both processions passing by, which would I have chosen to follow? Am I gonna, am I gonna choose the power of government and military? Or am I gonna choose the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's the choice we make every day. Power and might over love, the way things are done over the way God intends for them to be, God's kingdom over the world's kingdom. Jesus said this, Matthew 6, 33, it's a verse you're familiar with. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. I really like one phrase in the way the New Living Translation puts that. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. That's what it means when it says seek first the kingdom of God. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. First place above everything else in the world. Above your job, above your investments, above your retirement, above everything else in the entire world. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he, that is God, will give you everything you need. I said to our class at nine o'clock this morning, I plan to vote for the political candidates that I think will do the best job the way I want them done. But that's not where my hope lies. And that's not really my main concern on this planet. I know that no matter who gets elected, it's not the ultimate answer. Oh good, you know, so-and-so gets elected, so it's the ultimate good that could possibly happen on the planet. I plan to stand for right against wrong, but I'm not going to quit when wrong seems to win out over right. One day Jesus is going to return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and make all things right, but that hasn't happened yet. And that's the only thing that is going to make all things right. But when Jesus came the first time, it was to bring a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom whose purpose it is to save the world from sin, a kingdom whose purpose is to make disciples, baptize disciples, and teach people the word of God, a kingdom whose purpose is to be a city on a hill, the light of the world, a kingdom whose main purpose is to be witnesses of Christ in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we can't lose sight of the main purpose of God's kingdom. But seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. That takes a lot of faith. Now, I hope that during this week that Todd's referred to as Holy Week a little bit earlier, a, a common term. This week that starts with Palm Sunday and ends with Easter. 
I hope you'll think about that kingdom. But seek first, put above, above all else, seek that kingdom and live righteously. And God is going to meet the needs in your life. I hope that you'll think about that kingdom throughout the week. I hope that you'll pray about it every day. I hope that you'll go to the Bible app or Bible.com and, and, and do one of those devotionals that's about Holy, Holy Week or Easter or open your Bible and read the parts of the four Gospels about these particular events. I hope you'll think and pray and I hope you'll return Friday night as we think about, it's hard to say celebrate the crucifixion because it was a terrible time and a terrible thing, but the greatest event other than the resurrection itself. And then I hope you'll be back again next Sunday as we celebrate Jesus's resurrection from the dead. I hope that you'll choose to put God and his kingdom above all else and trust him to take care of you. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your savior and you feel God drawing you to him, don't push him away. Say, well, this must be something real. Maybe I do need to confess my sin. Acknowledge that God is in charge and that Jesus is God and trust him to be my savior. If you've never, if you've done that, but you've never publicly acknowledged it by baptism, then you need to consider doing that. If you need to get connected, get involved in a church, this is a good place to do it, right here. The local embodiment of the kingdom of Christ. I just encourage you, you have a card that's in your bulletin. And on that card, you can say anything you want to say to me on the back, make some comments. Uh, if it's appropriate, I'll contact you during the week. If it isn't or you don't want to be contacted, I won't. But just think about what does God want me to do with relationship with putting his kingdom above all else on this planet. We're going to close a little bit differently. Uh, as I pray, I'm going to ask the ushers to come up and we're going to go directly into the offering uh, and then uh, the musicians will close things out. Father in heaven, I know you're here with us today and I thank you for that. can only imagine the excitement, the exuberance the triumphal entry as Jesus rode that donkey into the city of Jerusalem uh, the Sunday before the resurrection. And I ask you to uh, give us the grace this week to put you number one, to read about you, to pray to you, to encourage others around us to be involved in the celebrations of your resurrection. I thank you for providing our needs and now as we receive the offering this morning, I ask you to bless each one who by faith gives back to you part of that which you've given to them. In Jesus' name.